Welcome back to the Limited Upside Podcast. I'm Mike Prada. Ben is ducking me and traveling to San Diego for some sort of thing. You know, nice to be him. But in his place, we've got two really good guests to talk about two of the big hot-button issues of the playoffs. First, we have Eddie Mason from the Sports Fan Journal to talk about Russell Westbrook and what the heck we saw last night. Uh, with his shots because that was among one of the weirder moments we've seen in the playoffs and then later we'll talk about another weird thing in the playoffs the Bulls being up 2-0 on the Celtics with Ricky O'Donnell SB Nation Bulls fan and college hoops editor uh, he gets to gloat about how he called it he thought the Bulls were going to win this series and he's looking pretty good so far but before you listen as always please rate review and subscribe to the show on iTunes we really appreciate your reviews as you've probably noticed we changed some things around Based on your reviews, we changed the theme song, we changed the logo, so we really value your feedback. And you can always also send the show questions. You can either tweet me at Mike Prada SBN or tweet the show at Limited underscore Upside. We really appreciate the support. Uh, we'll be back throughout the playoffs, but until then, sit back and enjoy this edition of the Limited Upside Podcast. Welcome back to the Limited Upside Podcast. I've kicked Ben out, and we've got two guests coming on today to talk about the playoffs. The first, I've been really excited about this after what happened last night. we got old friend Eddie Masonette. He's the editor-in-chief of the Sports Fan Journal uh, in, Fo- in digital at Fox Sports and the proprietor of the Zero Appreciation hashtag on Twitter. And we got to talk about Russell Westbrook last night, man. Yeah, man. It's, it's, uh, we're getting, we're going to get up as many shots as possible to pay pay homage to number zero man 43 shots last night 51 points four of 18 in the fourth quarter and they lose at the end and the takes have been flying all day (laughs) you know and as they should because this is really the epitome of the russell westbrook experience at its core what happened last night individual brilliance marred by just baffling moments and his other teammates basically being statues. So as you're watching that game coming down the stretch, cause you are a thunder fan. Like, are you happy about those shots? Are you like, kind of like, that's what we've been getting all year. Or is it like, man, Russ, what the hell are you doing? Um, no, it's not. It, it was, it was definitely peak Russell Westbrook. You know, I've given him the moniker, you know, I, I have an affection for people's middle names and I've given him the name Geronimo uh, yeah. quick, Oklahoma history lesson. So Geronimo was a feared Indian um, from Oklahoma, and he would consistently wage war against um, uh, American soldiers. Uh, and he would somehow win win major battles against American soldiers, like um, the the soldiers did with Three Hundred in the movie Three Hundred. Right, similar yeah. stories. So he's like a, a Geronimo is a real legend. And he always epitomizes Russell Westbrook to me, so because he, he's so willing to just take on the world. And you know, Russell last night went peak Geronimo in my terms. And you know, like that's not anything new. Um, but I think because there's like the stakes, you know, I think we become jaded in the regular season because there's so much going on with the Thunder storylines of, of the post KD era. Oh, this is the triple double era. Um, this is Russell doing incredible things, sometimes going overboard, but like we're numb to it. 
So for him to do it with stakes on the line and a game that felt winnable, um, it's kind of like, man, what are you doing? But we're also like, well, who else do you really want to shoot the ball? And they've always been this walking like problem of like, <sighs> they are so, you know, most teams have one square peg you know, for the round hole, but they have like five of them on the roster. And I think they have, they've always had a philosophy that hasn't figured out how to like manage it in an effective way. Um, and last night was just, you know, consistently rolling snake eyes at the worst possible scenario for, for Russ and the Thunder. I love that you call them square, square pegs. I feel like some are like triangle pegs, like some yes. are, some are like those like weird convex like Pac-Man shaped pegs. Like it's got a weird set of pegs. Um, but are they really that bad? The other team, the other players on the team. Like I, this is a question that Corbin Ford Watson sent us, and it's like, okay, like everybody says the Thunder supporting cast is just really bad. They point to this stat that they were minus eleven in like the whatever minutes that he was off the floor last right. night, and that's where the game was lost. They point to the plus minus. All of that. They point to like, you know, look at where the Rockets defenders are standing when he's uh, out there. But like, they also paid $180 million to two of members of those supporting cast this summer, Victor Oladipo and Steven Adams. Like, are we giving that supporting cast a short shrift? Well, it's interesting because I look at Oladipo and Adams, and I think they're two very versatile, uh, you know, slightly above, above average players. But I think when you start looking at the roster past Oladipo, and uh, Big Kiwi Adams, they are they are so like binary, like on opposite ends of the spectrum. Like Roberson, Roberson is arguably the best perimeter defender in the NBA, not named Kawhi Leonard, and yeah. he is so tremendous defensively. And, and like I think that people that watch basketball feel like they might be able to shoot better than Andre Rolfson, right? <laughs> and, and, and then you're lo- you look at Ennis Cantor. Ennis Cantor is like, you know, they, 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 you know, for whatever reason, love to say, oh, he's like Turkish Olajuwon. He's got tremendous postgame. Great, you know, a great feel offensively around the rim. Good touch. You know, just tremendous. And defensively, people who watch basketball on a consistent basis feel like they can score on Ennis Cantor. And then you continue to go down the line I mean, Samaj, Samaj, can't, Samaj Christian is is a non-factor when he comes to, to shooting. You know, they had Anthony Morrow uh, on the roster, and he couldn't play any defense. Now they have McDermott, and they don't feel like he can play defense. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, in retrospect, when you see a team like, you know, Golden State, of course, is the perfect example, where you just – you don't have players that have just fatal flaws. You even look at Houston, where – everybody's got the same fatal flaw. Like, okay, none of us really play defense really well, but we're going to overwhelm you all with the same type of superlatives and skills. Oklahoma City has this mismatch roster where it's like, no, we have two or three guys that can't do this, and we try to play them with two or three other guys that can't play, can't do that. And then it becomes just a cluster because Westbrook is like, you know, he's he's almost the perfect player for like spread, pick, and roll and to play that type of style but he has nobody to like spread the floor and then if they do try to put those players that could spread the floor like a McDermott and guys like that maybe you do play Canner at the five um those dudes just can't play any defense whatsoever and so I've always asked the question I'd love to ask the question to you is like if they had league average players that could you know play decent defense and could shoot a reasonable percentage from deep 
like play, putting that around someone as spectacular as Westbrook, would that actually end up being better? And I'm saying I, I think I have my own answer, but I'm curious what you think. If you put league average players that were good offensively and defensively versus guys who are on such opposite ends of the spectrum. So you're basically saying if they had five Victor Oladipos. I mean, that would be it – w- it would be – I feel like even Oladipo is too aggressive, right? But, like, maybe it's like if you had Oladipo – If you have five and, Trevor Arizas. Yes. Tre- Trevor Ariza is probably – you know, give me De- Trevor Ariza-esque um, players um, around him, and you put Adams at center, and, you, and, and then you figure it out. Like, is that a better team? Because I would – I could make a case that they, they could be because they just they just don't suffer so much um, – on the, on the other end. Well, see, here's where I think the counterfactual is really difficult because the way that team is built, like I know they, they didn't plan on losing Kevin Durant, but this was like kind of true too, when they had Kevin Durant, you know, the way they looked at it is that we've got these great players that frankly, we have to let them do what they want to do. And we're just going to kind of fill in all the other roles and we're going to let, we know that there's kind of, no way that we can get them to change their game. So let's just get people to do everything else. And, you know, I think Troy Weaver made a comparison in some article, you know, the assistant GM saying like, yeah, this is just like having Iverson and the team that he took to the finals. And, you know, once you get to that point, you've already kind of enabled like Russell Westbrook to just take every shot. So you've almost inorganically built the team with the, you know, knowing that there's a premise that you're never going to get Russell Westbrook to get to a level where he's going to lift those guys anyway. So you've already, like, to the point of, like, whether they had, like, five, not five Trevor Reese's, if they, I know you could also argue that if they thought that Russell Westbrook would actually play like James Harden, they would have tried to get five Trevor Reese's, but they have already accepted that he won't. And that this is literally, this is how Russell Westbrook is going to play. Like, you cannot change any of that. Like, he's basically taking all of KD's possessions and for himself. Like, he did this even when Durant was here. Like, this is just who he is. And to, if you had five Trevor Arizas, they kind of look like Victor Oladipo, I think would be the counter argument to that. And, you know, that's where you start to see, like, kind of the, the catch-22 that I think the Thunder are in. It's like... Watching Westbrook do what he did, like you can't just switch their places so easily. That would require like a total recalibration of how you surround the team, right? You know, and that's that to me is where that argument. Watching that game last night and watching Westbrook, you know, just I mean, my wife was watching with me, and she's not a huge basketball fan, but she was like, "Dude, does that ever? Does that dude ever stop going? Like, does that dude ever? <laughs> he's like the Energizer Buddy, and like, yes, that's true, but like." He, that's not like a productive thing to do. Like you need to be able to kind of switch uh, off and on. If they could have built a team that would take advantage of someone that could do that, they would have done it. But I think they've like kind of made their bet that this is the Westbrook they're getting. And to me, that's like already at that point, you've already cap- put a ceiling on yourself that maybe you weren't going to reach anyway, but now you're definitely not going to reach. Well, well and, and my thought is, and I, and I, I think that's very valid what you're saying, because I, I, I felt like, my expectations at the beginning of the season, I remember you and I had this conversation about what we thought the war, the Thunder would be. And, you know, I was kind of resigned to the fact that, like, this is going to be a decent team, but I never actually thought of them as, like, a good team. And I guess I just say good because I just recognize them as fatally flawed. And, you know, look, this is the, this is the rough season. Like, and I actually think one thing I've seen from Westbrook is that he has, he's one of them, he's like me when I was a kid. <laughs> you have to bump your head. Sometimes you have to bump your head a few times 
before you realize, okay, I have to make real adjustments. And and we've seen Russ like when he when his team loses, he'll he'll adjust game to game. He 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 doesn't really adjust quarter to quarter or like in moments of the game. He kind of has to like he's gonna ride his decisions out from a game to game basis. And and I think he's gonna go through this season and. Um, I think he's going to have to make some real decisions like, OK, like we have to do this a different way. And I, and actually, I don't even think it's as accountable on him as much as it is accountable on Donovan and ultimately Presti, um, because, look, as much as we want to qualify Presti as a genius, and I think he is a genius in some, in some levels, um, but he's the one who made that bed with Donovan and he's the one who's committed to putting this roster together. And, you know, I think if if you're going to really get Russ to buy in. Um, past 2018, um, you know, I think you've got to have some 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 uh, other ways to get it done. And what's scary is, is like they've got so much money committed. You know, people I talk to within the org, they say that they're they're committed to try to bring Roberson back. And, you know, if they bring Roberson back, I mean, they're, they're already their five best players are already capped at probably about $105 million. You know, yeah, for, I mean, they spent $180 million on Steven Adams and Victor Oladipo, and those dudes don't get the ball. I mean, yeah. do you remember when we thought that, like, Oladipo would be, like, the secondary playmaker and you could play off, they could play off each other? Like, that, it's not how they play. No. You know, and they're, no. I, look, Oladipo got injured for a stretch, and he hasn't really been in rhythm, and they haven't had time to develop that. But, you know, that's not something that they've built. And I just, I just think that like they have built their team in such a way, like you said, where it's like, we're going to help Russell Westbrook have the best individual season ever, but we're not necessarily going to maximize everybody. Like the whole organization is. And then what happens is that you have these moments during the season where they, they go to the exact same strategy and it works. You know, they won so many games that way where they're like, you know what? Like Russ is just going to shoot us into this victory. And then the playoffs rolls around and, you know, Houston helps a little bit more off these other guys. And these other guys are just not prepared to, you know, are not really ready to shoot or ready to do anything. Like I, I wrote a piece today where I spotlighted like these two plays that the both teams ran down the stretch. It was a very similar sort of type of play. And you just see the difference where it's like, on the one hand, like Houston players, they're all ready to catch the ball from Harden and they're all spaced out so well because of their threats. And they are so much harder to guard as a collective, but they're also looking for the ball and Harden is looking to give them the ball. There's sort of a virtuous cycle there. And then meanwhile, you go on the other end, like it's the exact opposite. They're not spaced in the right place. The Rockets don't care about them, but at the same time, they don't, they're not looking for the ball. There's a vicious cycle going on, right. you know, and that's, I think that's what happens when you build your team this way. And, you know, the Thunder have to just, I think at this point, accept that, you know, this is who they are. Like, this is the, this is the kind of team they are. This is the team they're going to let Russ get his numbers. And it's going to be great. But I, I, I admit that I watching that game. I felt more uncomfortable about the idea of him winning MVP than I did coming into that game. And it's just because watching all that, it just it's not because he was any less brilliant. It just felt less like real basketball to me. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's that's that kind of there's a belief like this is look, look these guys uh, three four years ago. You know when Harden was on that roster, I actually felt like look they've committed to playing a certain style of ball. It's like we play one on one basketball better than anybody, and we're going to allow our ability to go one-on-one, then penetrate and find other people to cut and take advantage of the attention that we draw as a vicious cycle to dominate you offensively. And that's essentially what I felt like 
the last incarnation of Harden, Westbrook, and Durant were. And even when it was just Westbrook and Durant, like those two were so dominant in that in the way that they were able to do it and feed off of each other and ultimately have guys around them like Ibaka um, and, and guys like that who and who could actually stretch the floor um, to help them. Like it made them six, seven points away from being in the Western in the NBA Finals last season. Yeah. Um, and and now. They are down two guys like that. And now it's just Westbrook still trying to do the same thing. And I think what's what's going to have to happen is I will say this about Westbrook is he definitely hears everything, even though he loves to act like he does it. Oh, yeah. Um, so he, he listens he, to this podcast. All right. Hey, Russ, yeah, how you doing? <laughs> hey, Russell, Russell, hit me. Slide into my DMs later. We'll talk again. <laughs> and I'll get my mama to send you some banana cream pudding. I got you. But um, the point remains is that I think a he he ultimately can be deferential to people he respects and that you can like take that in a, in a in a variety of ways he ultimately always had kevin durant and james harden's respect when he played for them and he deferred to he would he would defer to those guys and i think in some ways he was still very willing to be deferential to brooks we saw uh, Westbrook be deferential to Coach Krzyzewski. I know it's a different scale when we're talking about right. the Olympics, but we saw Westbrook willing to take different roles and, and see him play in a different way. I've never thought that Westbrook wasn't willing to do something different um, or be willing to defer, but you're going to have to prove to him that it's like he, you're going to have to make him believe that it's worth deferring and changing it up. Because again, to the point, it's like you're giving him, you know, Andre Roberson over there on the wing and you're seeing what's happening to Canner defensively. And, you know, and frankly, I think um, there should be more empowerment of Oladipo to be uh, empowered. And like, I think Russ has yeah, responsibility to do that. But Russ is also like, I, I can only push you to go so far. Like you got to have that in you to do it. And, uh, you know, so I think that's, that's where the challenge I think again comes to Donovan. And I think, you know, unfortunately, I think Donovan's going to be on the hot seat because he has to be the motivator of men. And I think I'm always going to hold Presti's feet to the fire because if he's going to be the 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 leader of men in that way for that organization and be the genius that makes these things work, then he's got to change up the formula um, to not only get the most out of Westbrook, but to get the most out of this hundred million um, that he's invested into these players. Yeah, I mean, this is why he's so interesting is because yeah. of all of this. And, you know, Tom. Tom Ziller wrote this this morning, you know, how much of the way they play do you blame on Westbrook and how much do you blame on like literally how they play the exact same way, but they had two dudes last year and now they only have one. And then is that the, is it the fault of the person who left? That is all this. And I mean, the other thing too, is that he may feel motivated to play differently, but you know, he's played like this for years and years and years and he's earned a lot of, you know, respect for it. He's earned a lot of accolades. Uh, he could win. He's probably going to win MVP playing this way. You know, so at what point? What is the thing that's going to push you to p- play differently? Even if you say you want to, like it's it's a big adjustment. Like he's not a great spot up shooter, and they have built the roster like just kind of accepting the limitation that he had. So I just thought it was really interesting that it was laid bare in that one game and that one quarter. And you know, we this was how he played all year. And yet in this game he missed. And now it's like we're all kind of realizing like what we've really seen throughout this. So, you know, did it – I assume you had Russ as your fake MVP or did you not? You know what's interesting? I did not have him as my as my MVP. Interesting. I, I, okay. I had, 
I had Harden, and there, I, there are people in Oklahoma that say I can't come back home. Um, but I, didn't, <laughs> I, I had I had Harden as a narrow edge, um, partially due to uh, efficiency, uh, but you know, I, uh, and, and partially because of the winning. Um, and I kind of feel like we're splitting hairs. Um, although I do find it interesting, I think Westbrook uh, had the same like three point percentage, or like within like tenths of a point, uh, tenths of a percentage point from uh, Harden's three point he did, percentage. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I felt like, you know, I felt like really this is a one, one, a situation, but if I, you put a gun to my head, I think I would have voted hearted. Um, I actually, my, my curiosity is always, look, two years ago, uh, or last year, you know, we saw the, the jump in his game when D'Antoni got there and, and I think D'Antoni deserves so much credit for just not only buying into Maury's philosophy, buying into everything that Harden is and then having that impact on the team and seeing the statistical explosion of, of Harden. Uh, and, 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 and that's the kind of like one of those sad questions that we have about players that we see is like, man, what if certain players would have had the opportunity to flourish in other types of systems? You know, we don't hold it against Steph Curry for like Steve Kerr going in there and like being Nas from Fade and the Furious to like, blowing up the warriors to being like you know superhuman right but like we remember what it was like when when jackson was there and steph curry was a really good player and he went from a really good player to the greatest shooting supernova we've ever seen in life right and like this 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 thing that happens with the warriors and so you know it's interesting we don't necessarily talk enough about the offensive or sometimes defensive philosophies and how they have an impact on players i think you know it it um, we've seen the type of effect that somebody like Thibodeau can have on a defense uh, or even Mike Brown when he was, you know, considered still an elite defensive coach and having an effect on that way, which is coincidentally, he's on the Warriors now. Um, yeah. And I saw, him at the, I saw him at the club the other day. We were having drinks. <laughs> uh, um, okay. Yeah. He like he likes, he likes. That's for the off the record. Like, that's for the off the record part of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, we're both old fashioned fans, but my, my old fashions are good. But yeah. um, yeah. But you know, you raise a, a good point too. It's like, where does the, where do you dole out the credit? But at the same time, you also have to think of it as like, to some degree, Steph Curry allowed himself to be coached, and James yeah. Harden allowed himself to buy into what McDaytoni was doing, you know. And he has changed his game. And how much of that is D'Antoni? How much of that is a realization on Harden's part? And you know, does Westbrook have the same capacity to buy into something that someone else is selling? And like, do the Thunder have the capacity to create a new system to buy into something different? Like, and I would say that the roster as is does not have that. But then, where do you draw the line? That's why this is such an interesting conversation. Like, how they call it the most valuable player, not the best player, and that that leads itself to like such these interesting sort of sub discussions about you know how valuable is coachability, how valuable is adaptability. Like, are you more valuable if you play your way? so well or are you more valuable if you're able to shift between roles to make life better for everybody else which is more valuable and you see this series and it's like the two approaches are like totally laid bare you've got Harden who has subtly changed his game because it can at the same time the conditions around him were better and you've got Westbrook who's basically taken what he does and thrown a battering ram and done it to the nth degree you know and I just watching that game I gotta say like just Maybe it was just because it felt inorganic and the Rockets felt more organic and there's something aesthetic to that that you relate to. But, boy, that made me wonder, like, these people are picking Russ to win MVP. Like, what 
are they like really appreciating the game or are they just appreciating the spectacle? Because I, I just did, that did not feel like real basketball when the Thunder no. were on offense. It just felt, it didn't feel right. Even when you compare it to like how they played this year, like it just didn't feel like the sport that I grew up loving. Let me say this. Uh, I, I want to put a, a thought to this and a cap to it if I think, because mm-hmm. I don't think that you can, you can't, you know, I, I don't think Russell Westbrook lost, I mean, I don't think he could have lost. I think the voting is over. But no, the voting is over. Yeah, yeah. So he, you know, he can't lose the MVP for one game. Uh, I think, and and just like I think, you know, until you know, Harden hurt his hand, and then Westbrook kind of went on his final surge. Like I don't necessarily think Westbrook won the MVP in that instance either. I think Westbrook is who he is, and I think. you know, if you were playing roulette and you were betting on double zero to hit, like that was the double zero game that like yeah. Westbrook just decided to do everything. Well, the and, double zero quarter because you know he did score fifty one points, <laughs> which we for, we forget about this. Like that is still absurd, but the double zero quarter for sure. Double zero quarter because he remember he was thirteen to twenty five, and you know he, he had an he played phenomenally through three quarters, and um, you know it wasn't you know I don't think if you'd have just stopped the game right there. You know, nobody would have said, oh, Westbrook's going to make people question the MVP after three quarters. I, I, I almost wonder if, like, maybe something was said. Maybe he saw something. I, you know, maybe he just felt the pressure um, in a bad way. You know, we, we, we don't hold it against Harden for really climbing up last year in the playoffs uh, in, the, in that way. And, or, you or know, in the past. I mean, you look at previous series he's had. He's climbed up. Two years ago as well, or three years yeah. ago. It, and it's not to bring Harden down. Harden is so phenomenal, and he's so far past his poor play in the NBA Finals um, and the, his recent struggles with Houston. Like, he's such a phenomenal player. This is not – and I could bring up other players and compare it. Um, I, I just think, you know, we've never seen Westbrook lead it, it ever like, actually have it be his team. Even since UCLA, he wasn't the lead guy in UCLA, and this is the first time he's had to carry it. It reminds me a little bit of Pippen in '94, um, and he had the struggles with Kukoc, and and Kukoc ended up taking the last shot. And Scotty, there 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 are certain superstars that if it wasn't Scotty Pippen, we would hold it over his head in a much greater way. And Scotty Pippen had the advantage of wins and rings, um, and they won together. That and then Jordan came back. That was a salve that fixed all of that, right? Yeah. Um, and, and and I wonder. Yeah, Pippen was almost know, traded that year too to Seattle. Yeah. Like, how would that yeah. affect his legacy? Exactly. So you know, I just I just wonder, like, uh, you know, after this season, like, what type of change happens, and, and and how can they really push forward? Because I think they have all their chips stacked, and I think they have some chips that they're going to have to readjust. Namely, I think Canner is going to be up on his deal. They have to make a decision on Roberson and. They have to really figure out how do they optimize Oladipo and Steven Adams. Yeah, well, it's it's going to be fascinating to watch how this all plays out. And yet, they still could win the series. It's not over yet, but exactly. something felt final. Like that felt like you know we're having like the greatest like trip of our lives, and just the <laughs> drug is wearing off. You know, that's sort of what that game felt like. Because again, he's played that way all year, and it's been breathtaking, and it's been. Unlike something we've ever seen, but like that's the downside is that he just starts missing. You know, maybe yeah. nothing really changed. It just, it just showed all of us like the thing that we were enjoying like is so fragile. But look, it's it's a really fascinating 
discussion. Uh, and I really, I really appreciate you coming on to talk about it because, you know, as, as a Thunder fan, I imagine there's some split allegiances here as well. Like you want what's best for him, but like, is there's also like what's best for the team as well. And it must be tough as a Thunder fan to kind of reconcile those two things to some degree. Yeah. I, I you know what I, I think I've actually, is, is, this might sound defeatist, but I think I've actually been resigned to the Thunder's fate once the season started and you started to witness how things were going. Uh, uh, this felt kind of inevitable. And I actually feel like it needs to happen. It's kind of like sometimes your parents might tell you, like, don't do this, don't do this. And the kid invariably has to burn his hand or bump his head, you know, you know, uh, to to make them learn. And I, I'm one, I, I just think that Russ needs to get the highs of the highs out of his system and the lows of the lows to f- embrace it and feel it. So that he understands, like he maybe hopefully has to figure out his balance. And let me tell you, and if he does, if he bumps his head and he goes through the season and he comes back next season, he's the exact same guy. Um, then I think it will be a bit of an, it will be way more of an indictment. Um, and and you know, I think you you have to adjust accordingly as an organization. But I but I I, I, I this is a way this is a this is a telling time in his career because he's going to get all the adulation and praise. And he might get all of the scorn um, in a similar way. It's, it kind of reminds me of uh, Dirk Nowitzki um, in his MVP year um, and how he had to, you know, reevaluate. And I think Dirk's changes were a lot more subtle. But he, at the very least, we looked at Dirk Nowitzki and the time after losing to the 07 Warriors, he wasn't bullied again. And his game became even more versatile that there was nothing, even by punishing and trying to bully him, he still had options. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how Russ and the organization adjust to this season. Absolutely. And what we've seen from Russ is that when he bangs his head, he just kind of goes in harder to break. Yeah. So it'll be fascinating to see if he does that again. Eddie Mason, thanks for joining us on the Limited Upside podcast. Don't go anywhere, though. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, another team that has been frustrating a lot this year, but is now actually doing some great things. The Chicago Bulls with Ricky O'Donnell. Uh, this is a Limited Upside podcast. with uh, part two of the Benless Limited Upside podcast. And for this part, we've got someone who has a few things they want to gloat about after a blog post of epic proportions on bloggable.com. Ricky O'Donnell, uh, the SB Nation College Troops editor, NBA uh, helpful editor, also a Chicago Bulls fan. Ricky, you picked the Bulls to win in six games, and they're two games away from doing that in the first round against the Celtics. So you got the floor to like, tell everybody why they were wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, I get why everyone expected the Celtics to win the series because the Bulls have been terrible. The season was mm-hmm. so uninspiring uh, for the Bulls. I have never seen fan apathy higher than it's been this season for the Bulls. The Bulls typically have a great fan base. I mean, they were selling out games every single year after Jordan retired during those pre-Ben Gordon, Luol Deng, Kirk Heinrich years. 
under Tim Floyd, those teams were terrible, and the Bulls are still leading the league in attendance. So the it is a really good, passionate fan base. Uh, but this year, amongst the most passionate fans, I've never sensed greater apathy. People were rooting for them to miss the playoffs, to lose the last game of the regular season to the Nets. Fortunately, the Nets decided to rest all their starters and basically gave the Bulls a free trip to the postseason, cost the Heat. I know Heat fans are angry about that. Uh, but, you know, just if you take this Bulls season in totality, I think it played out to be just about as uninspiring as we all expected it to be in the preseason. Even the Bulls getting to 41 wins, uh, that was a little bit of an overachievement in a sense because the Vegas preseason line was 38 and a half wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, just a disaster of a season all around for the Bulls, even though they were able to get in that last playoff spot. And then what we're seeing against the Celtics, I think, is a combination of two things. First of all, I think it's that the Celtics, while this is a one-versus-eight matchup, I do think Boston is pretty weak for number one seed. They're not as strong as a traditional top seed uh, in the playoffs. I mean, 53 wins, I believe that's the lowest in the decade. A point differential of 2.7, I think that equates to about a 47-win team. Yeah, Uh, It's not like they were blowing the doors off anyone. Anyone who followed the East all year knows that the story of the season was the Cavs blowing it more so than the Celtics like grabbing it and earning this number one seed. It was more about Cleveland not coming together in the regular season, the second half just collapsing. Uh, And then I think the second part of it is the Bulls just match up really well with this Boston team. I mean, they have a major advantage on the glass, which has totally come to fruition in the first two games of this series. They have the best player in the series in Jimmy Butler. How many times can you say that about an eight versus a one? Uh, And, you know, they're they're really just a matchup problem for the Celtics. So uh, it's a perfect storm of circumstances for the Bulls that have them in this position. And, of course, now the front office is going to feel all self-satisfied. They put together a great team (laughs) that was laying in the grass the whole time waiting to pounce uh, the switch in the playoffs. But really, they did a poor job the whole season. I think the fans know that. But at the same time, Bulls fans had to watch a lot of bad basketball this year. So watching these last two games has been a lot of fun, to be honest. I'm, I'm it's, sure. It's the first time I've been excited about the Bulls uh, in a while. Yeah, we'll get to the part about how this might be validating for the wrong reasons. Don't worry. We'll we'll put you back down in your misery <laughs> before yet. But see, the thing is, I knew all these things about the rebounding, about Jimmy Butler, about the Celtics being a weak number one seed. And yet I had just no faith that the Bulls would be able to pull off a coordinated like plan to carry out all the things they could do. Why do you think they're doing it? I think the main difference is that they're hyper-focused and hyper-prepared for this series. I think that you've seen that from the very start of it. They're blowing the Celtics' plays up Mm -hmm. before they start, and you've done work spotlighting some of those examples of that. Uh, In you know, Rondo and Jimmy Butler have said to the media that you know everyone's locked in right now. That uh, you know they really feel like they're prepared. I think Rondo. Uh, spending some time on the Celtics during the start of Brad Stevens' tenure in Boston is probably helpful for them. He's really been locked in, and that's what the Bulls have needed. Like uh, To me, the two swing guys on the Bulls are Miritich and Rondo. When those guys are playing well, the Bulls are somewhat of a formidable team. I mean, they're not a laughing stock when Rondo and Miritich are playing well, but that's the problem. They're both uh, – you, you can't count on consistent performance from them uh, – you know, week in, week out. I mean, Rondo, the entire fan base wanted him cut in January or in February after they traded for Cameron Payne. Everyone's looking at the roster being like, well, they got too many point guards. I guess just cut Rondo. Uh, He was getting DMP'd in January uh, for a few different weeks. But 
you know, the way Rondo's been playing has just been an absolute revelation. I think that, you know, him sort of being an assistant coach on the floor and just their level of preparation in general is the, the biggest thing that swung the series in their favor against Boston. Yeah, see, that's what I wasn't, it was a big wild card to me. You know, what, what that's what I didn't expect. Like, watching Rajon Rondo play in the Boston Garden the way he has, it feels like it's five years ago. It feels like he's bouncing all over the court. It feels like he's disrupting what Isaiah Thomas wants to do, like with those long Velocraptor arms. And it feels like he's or he's actually aggressive in doing stuff. And it's been a, a bizarre season for Rondo where you have – at first you have the moment where he's calling out Wade and Butler on Instagram. You clearly see that they don't function well together. But yet the young players love Rondo. You had that time he was benched, but then he comes back. And, you know, he actually was playing decently well for – a little bit before these playoffs, you know, it's just been like a, a weird thing to kind of figure out. And like, I mean, do, do you think that some of it has to do with the motivation of playing in Boston? You know, that, I mean, I've never seen him play harder and more energetic. And since he, before he hurt his knee in these first two games, I mean, you know, Miritich had a game where he didn't play well and Miritich had a game where he played well. Like Rondo has been like the best player. I think their best player in a lot of ways, you know, maybe him or Robin Lopez, or Jimmy yeah, Butler, I guess. <laughs> He's not bad either. <laughs> Rondo's been great, and I think, you know, uh, that Instagram post, when it came out, everyone saw that as sort of, you know, the Bulls finally burning down the way that everyone, all the smart yeah. analysts thought they would in the preseason. You know, this was Rondo at his worst, in a sense. The guy who clashed with Rick Carlisle, the guy who wore out his welcome in Sacramento. But in a way, that was a strangely galvanizing moment. Yeah, I, think. I know. That's so weird about that. For, for two reasons. One, it put Wade and Butler on check because Wade and Butler uh, very much – it's an example of like uh, them – they sort of ran over Hoiberg. I'm, I'm stopping myself in the analogy I was going to use. It's sort of them – they like overpowered Hoiberg I think for a lot of the season. Uh, I think that you know Hoiberg not being a really fiery coach – I mean part of that is Hoiberg's health issues. He can't even wear a tie because he's had heart issues in the past. You know what I'm so Hoiberg's got to keep himself in check a little bit. I think that Wade and Butler were really running over him. In Rondo doing that, I think, sort of put those veterans on check. Rondo has championship experience. I mean, he absolutely commands respect of his peers. I think even if, like, NBA bloggers don't respect Rondo, I think his NBA peers do, in a sense. Well, the young it's, guys certainly do. I mean, they've said all year, like, this is a guy that's really working with us. And the young guys love him. The most revealing moment of that was when Rondo was getting DNP'd. He showed up to several games in Hoffman Estates for the Bulls D-League team. Who would do that when, you know, it looked like they were about to be cut from the team in a sense. Uh, he was not playing for weeks on end there in January, and he was still showing up to support Bobby Portis, Denzel Valentine, Paul Zipser, and the D-League in Hoffman Estates. I mean, that's uh, pretty impressive for Rondo. So I think, uh, you know, he he's shown real leadership the whole season in a sense, which, uh, you know, maybe that's not something that you associate Rondo with, but he's been fantastic for the younger portion of the roster and in this series, he has been so dialed in on both ends. It's really made all the difference to the Bulls. Yeah, it's it's very weird to see. Um, you know, because, like, look, the rebounding, right? Like, you could envision a world where Robin Lopez would own the Celtics in the glass. I thought it wouldn't be enough to matter. I thought they that would be the only advantage they might have. And I also looked at the stats, and they weren't rebounding as well in the second half of the year after they traded Taj Gibson. Like, okay, but, like, 
that at least is like within the realm of possibility when you know about these teams. I think the Rondo thing is is what's really surprising to me, you know, at the end of the day. And, you know, the other thing that I've always been fascinated about with uh, the Bulls fan base is like the – I mean, it was dripping in your post. Like the ire you have for the Celtics. There's something about them – you know, and look, the Celtics, they have we have to acknowledge the extenuating circumstances of Isaiah Thomas's tragic sister die, sister dying in that tragic death. They clearly are not all there and nor should they be. And it's hard to evaluate like what they're going through without considering that. But one of the things that I thought was like funniest about your piece is that you have one team in the Bulls that has no direction and then you have another team in the Celtics where it's like they have almost too much of a direction. They're like trying to have their cake and they eat it too. There's some sort of fetishization of what they've built as an asset pool more so than a basketball team. And it has to feel kind of satisfying for the team that, you know, was haphazardly just trying to build like, you know, the best team today, sort of taking you to the team that's like now trying to get you cute to some to some degree. I mean, that has to feel pretty satisfying. I mostly just think it's hilarious. And first of all, the Bulls do not deserve it at all it's like whatever, whatever satisfaction the front office is taking from this it's totally just leading to them making a bad trade for Carmelo Anthony next year and they end up winning like 45 games they bring Rondo and Wade back they add Melo it's gonna be a disaster but they'll think they can flip the switch again maybe they'll be able to I don't know uh I mostly think the f- contrast between the two fan bases is uh is, it's just so stark it's like the Bulls fans really wanted the team to miss the playoffs I mean fans- yeah and that, that's amazing. It's so true. And that's like kind of amazing to me. And, you know, I've had moments like as a Wizards fan where I've kind of thought that where it's like, oh, you don't want them to feel validated for like how they messed around. But not to the degree that Bulls fans were like this year. The Bulls fans are angry, dude. And I think it's because there really is, appears to be no long term plan. I mean, what Foreman will tell you is they're building along parallel lines. If they wanted to win now, and then they wanted to develop the younger half of the roster, they didn't want Bobby Portis, Denzel Valentine, Cristiano Felicio to get pounded when they were early in their careers. He wanted to learn how to win, so he brought in Wade, brought in Rondo. All right, whatever. It sort of makes sense, I guess, if you put enough spin on it. But what we know is that Rondo was an absolute pariah his last three years in the league. He was someone who no one wanted to touch, and the Bulls bit against themselves to get him. $14 million a year, and then gave him a partial guarantee next season. What a, what a steal by Rondo's agent, getting him $3 million next year. Well, I mean, with the way he's playing, like maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world for him to come back. Yeah, they're probably going to pick him up. And you know what? As a Bulls fan, I'm fine with it, I guess. Like nothing's really going to change long term for the Bulls because there's no accountability from the top down. It's like right. Sal Foreman's tied in super close with Michael Reinsdorf, who's Jerry Reinsdorf's son. He's basically running the team at this point. Their wives run the charity together. It's like... They're, he's totally in. They're not. They're not changing him. Paxson's been employed for twenty years at this point. Uh, you know, Hoiberg's their handpicked guy. They didn't even run a coaching search to replace Thibodeau, who was like the Mike Dicka of you know the the aughts, basically. Like yeah. the blue collar coach. Chicago just identified with so much. Uh, people really loved Thibodeau, and they were not happy when Thibodeau was fired, despite the fact that the end of his tenure was marred by injuries and inconsistent play as well. Uh, but, you know, this is this is the direction the Bulls are going to take. And you, fa- the fans like me who would like, you know, uh, a more, uh, you know, just like a better long-term direction, I guess, uh, that's not going to happen. So you have to sort of just take these small victories, I guess, and sort of laugh about it. I guess, you know, it's not the most important thing in the world in the 
in the in the grand scheme of things. But develop uh, <laughs> no. like this has just been hilarious, and I really think they're going to win the series. I well, mean, yeah. So it's let's, not a claim, but I mean, let's let's talk about that. I know we've had a couple questions that we got about the Celtics and about what this says about them from our buddy TM Warning, uh, from Robert Flom, for other people. So, do you think that this? I is it over? First of all, like, are the Bulls? You think it's over? I mean, two on the road, and they have what four of their next five at home, or three of their next four at home. I don't think it's over because the Bulls are bad. And it's like, they, like in game two, they hit 10 threes at a 40% clip. It's like Wade doesn't seem like he's in shape. My theory on this is that I think Wade got hurt, looked at the Bulls and was like, well, without the great Dwayne Wade, they're certainly not going to make the playoffs and just didn't keep himself in shape. Hmm. That was my theory after a bad game one. But it's working. <laughs> threw that in my face in game two. But why yeah. But why was he successful in game two? He hit three of four threes. Right. Like, if he's going to keep ripping threes, okay. Like, yes, that's going to work. But I'm skeptical that that's going to continue paying off. However, Wade does this in the playoffs every year. Last he two did years, last year, too. He's shooting 55% from three in the playoffs. That's amazing. Yeah. Incredible. I don't, I don't, I don't know what, what you – credit that for but yeah i mean so that could turn around i mean robin lopez may not hit every shot you know in game three and four like he did in game two but so let's say you're boston now and yeah. you're down 2-0 you know there are two questions i think the first thing that you know a couple people have asked is like okay so what do you do if you're brad stevens first of all you know you're getting killed on the glass you know your offense is like kind of stuck in mud you're you're lost all rhythm you know and again let you know let's uh, let's think of it just in basketball terms like there's nothing to be really said about Isaiah Thomas's situation other than it's terrible and it's got to be affecting them. But like, first of all, like in the short term, like what do you do if you're Brad Stevens, you think? Well, they have to figure out something with the rebounding because Lopez is averaging nine boards a game. If I wouldn't have looked it up and would have guessed, I would say he's averaging like 15 a game. It's just like, he, it seems like he's just dominating. Uh, absolutely. And he is grabbing, you know, four or five offensive rebounds, uh, a night, I would maybe try Tyler Zeller. He's got a little more weight and strength to him. I guess that's something they could do. Maybe Jerebko. They haven't given him much run. Uh, I mean, this is more of a question for you, I think. Like, what, what would you do if you were the Celtics? I think they're going to play Jerebko in game three. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they start him. You know, they tried Tyler Zeller, and that didn't really make a huge difference. You know, in game, I forget what game. I think it was game two. I mean, I guess they cleaned up the rebounding, but then. They made every shot. You know, I'm not sure there's much that can be done. I mean, I think in a very micro sense, the problem with the Celtics is that they have run this entire team all year that's based they, – they have this rhythm to them that if it gets disrupted, it kind of really throws them all off. And, you know, they just have to get back on rhythm. You know, so I don't know if there's like an easy answer like to what they do uh, on the glass. I think they almost have to just punt that and do their best. I mean, the bigger problem to me is that if they can't get their offense in gear in any way, like they are not going to have a chance because you have to be able to overcome the offensive rebounding uh, through them. I mean, the other the other big question is so let's say Boston loses the series. You know, we don't know exactly how close they were to getting Jimmy Butler. We don't know how close they were to getting Paul George. We don't know if it was a matter of they didn't want to trade their picks. We don't know if they were holding everything or if it was just that there was never really an opportunity. You know, what do you do this summer? You know, let's say you don't get the number one pick. Let's say you get maybe the third pick again. You know, and you're looking at Al Horford making all that money, Isaiah Thomas's contract coming up next after next year, Avery Bradley with the same. Like, what is – is this – 
going to increase the urgency to trade for a really good player? Or does this in a paradoxical way decrease the urgency and make them think like, you know, maybe Isaiah Thomas isn't the guy we want to lead this team long term? Like what what do you think this means for their long term future? Yeah, I'm probably going to sound like a hypocrite here considering I just sort of blasted them for, uh, you know, not making a move. But really, that was more like they're always like one foot in the water on these rumors. I feel like Ainge loves the rumors, but he's never actually committed to making a move. And that's why it's sort of annoying. It's like, yeah, you can probably have Paul George or Jimmy Butler give us both picks. But if you're not going to do that, don't offer us protections on one pick without, you know, you know, it's got to be a fair deal. But I want to say that they should just continue playing the long game. Now, uh, of course, I help cover the NBA draft and college basketball and recruiting for our website. So I'm familiar with the guys in the next two drafts, in this upcoming one and the 2018 draft. And I feel like that's still probably their best move just because, uh, of course, at the top of the draft, that's the best way to find a game-changing player. You have them under control for at least seven years at a really team-friendly deal. And I can't really think of a comparison throughout NBA history where you have a team with a number one seed and potentially two future number one picks. So I mean, maybe uh, the Celtics, when they won the title, like in the eighties, they had, when they had Len Bias and I guess James Worthy, but yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah. Not okay. in the modern era. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I would just see what happens. Even if they get the third or the fourth pick, it's like, you could still get a really good player in this draft at three or four. Uh, you know, People think Jalen Brown's pretty good, so, you know, he's going to develop. He's only 19 years old, and then next year, you know, you just roll with it again. Maybe the Nets won't be the worst team in the league next year, but I don't really see an avenue for the Nets to improve unless they're throwing, you know, big offer sheets at restricted free agents the way they tried to do last year, and even that wasn't working. Like, I don't think their max offer sheet for KCP is going to get through. Detroit will probably match that. Or, I don't you know, know why they would want him. You know, like, why would they want – like, the challenge I see – See, all that makes a lot of sense. And it's like, yeah, play the long game. You know, maybe Isaiah Thomas, as great as he is, like, is not the guy who leads you to a title. He's more of a bridge player. Like, maybe that's what it is. Maybe that you have Markel Fultz or some point guard and that's your dude and you're playing for 10 years. But then why sign Al Horford to, like, that next deal then? I mean, if you're not trying to do something right now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, He's not that contract's not going to look any better in two years. Like that, that is going that contract's only getting worse. And like, as good as as cerebral players he is, like when you watch him in the series, like that contract already looks like it's kind of like oh, I don't know about that. I you know, the way they're playing. So you've already kind of now. I think when you get Al Horford, I feel like you're signaling that you are trying to make a push, and then it would be sort of weird not to continue to make that push. And, you know, maybe they feel like they can get Gordon Hayward and they wouldn't have to give up anything. But this is sort of where I think they've got themselves caught a little bit. You know, they, they're they straddling a lot. Of, if you do a lot, try to do a lot of things, you end up doing, like, none of them, like, particularly well, you know. And so, in a way, they're almost like the Bulls in that they've they picked – they've not picked a direction. They just sort of – instead of the Bulls kind of, like, messing around and, like, trying seven things the, the Celtics would just have all these are in the cappers seat, but they won't actually go for anything. So that's where I think the challenge is. And that would have been a challenge if they lost in the second round. They lost in the conference finals. Fair enough. But like, you know, first round loss of this Bulls team as a way of shocking the system in a way that I, I think really exposes a lot of things. Yeah. They should feel humiliated by what's happened because the Bulls are not a good team. They were pretty much the laughing stock of the NBA throughout this year. You know, one of them right there with the Knicks and yeah. the Kings. You know, they were more successful. But 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it's tough. So, like, you know, do you do you like double down on the Horford contract if that's a mistake? If we're already that's saying true that, too. You know, yeah, you know, I, I don't know if that's the best way to fix a mistake is to double down on it. Uh, that's a good point as well. Like, maybe it's just like he's just going to age into a lesser role, and we're not going to be as good. And you know, that is what it is. Like, maybe that's that's sort of the thing. And like, I guess he's a good player. I just think he's a little like. You can't ask him to be the second best player on a good team at this point in his career. You to know? me, the bigger question than Horford for them is what they do with IT. Because it's yeah. more year in his contract. It's like, are you going to give him $20 million a year? You would think that that's a type of player. He's probably not going to age that well just because he's so small. He relies on his quickness. But he's awesome. I mean, he's such a good shooter. He's so quick. Uh, there's no bigger Isaiah Thomas fan than me. I think that the way he's maximized, you know, what he's been given is just absolutely incredible. I remember him as a college player. While I never thought he'd be this good in the league, uh, but to me, that's the big that's the big thing. And that decision will likely depend on what happens in the lottery for them. If they get Markel Fultz, if they get Lonzo Ball, then I think that that's probably your long term point guard of the future. Uh, you know, if they end up with the fourth pick and they take Jonathan Isaac, who's a wing, then it's like, well, I don't know. Maybe we do want to roll with it long term. Yeah, and look, he's done his part, even considering everything that he's gone through this week. He's done his part, and it, it's it's really un, it's really hard to judge a dude off these two playoff games. But I will say that, like, when you have him on your team, you're it's not like to the degree that like the Thunder play Russ Ball, but like you kind of have to play it ball. You know, he's basically a five nine shooting guard, yeah, playmaking skills. So you have to play that way. I think it would be really hard to fit in another really good score on that team around and, and get the most out of both of them. You know, I just think that's difficult. And, you know, they've gotten so far with him and he's become a cult hero in town and he all credit to him. But you do have to start to think to yourself like, well, yes, they're so bad without him. Like some of that has to do with how you have to construct the team to maximize him. You know, it's not, it's not quite Westbrook. Like, you know, these teammates stink and is it his fault or is it his teammates fault conundrum, but it's sort of a similar type of thing. You know, if you're going to build an entire offense around a dude running around these Princeton offense, you know, reads and all the off ball stuff he does, you're going to struggle when the one dude who can actually do that is out of the game. Like you just are, you know, and that's, that's, you know, in a way, Isaiah's fault and not his fault at the same time. And when you get to the point where you're thinking, like, this isn't just a $7 million player that we're happy he's overachieving. This is a guy that we're going to have to pay max money to. And maybe, I guess he's not eligible for the um, veterans extension or whatever. But still, and because of a more difficult question, and especially when you have the alternative option of just, like, building around a great point guard for the next 10 years. You know, it would have been – and maybe it's still possible. Like, if they somehow make – Ben keeps talking about this, and it's probably not going to happen. But if they had somehow made the conference finals, and then the lottery falls and they win the lottery, and Isaiah has now had to go out in the conference finals knowing that the Celtics are in position to draft his, repl- his potential replacement, that would have been fascinating. And I guess it still could happen, but you know, that's the question I think they got to ask themselves. I guess my thing with this is it goes back to a team building question of how do you find two way players? Like the Bulls had this problem for years where they had no one who could play offense. Their best their best lineup was all defensive guys and no one who could play offense. And now it's like the Celtics, uh, they have someone like Smart who's really limited offensively, but he's great defensively. And then Thomas, who's great offensively, but limited defensively. Uh, it just goes back to like, you know, when you construct your team, you really have to look for guys 
if who if they're not two way players already, they at least have two way potential. Yeah, but sometimes you know beggars can't be choosers, man. There aren't that many really good two way players in the NBA. You know, you, that's the other thing. And I think Danny Ainge decided when he made some of his trades that like we're gonna just pick off guys that are undervalued, and you know that's the challenge they have. But you know, so here's with Thomas. Do you think they just play out next season and then potentially lose him for nothing? Yeah, like they, I don't know. It's, I, I think a lot of it will depend on the next few games and seeing how that plays out. And we can't really know until the lottery comes. And, you know, the other thing, too, is that, like, if you're the Celtics, like, on the one hand, you've shown that you need something extra to, to advance. But are you going to be willing to make, like, a big trade knowing that Isaiah's got, you know, only one year left on his contract? And, you know, they could try to do the extension and sign thing, but... You know, it's the same problem they're going to have if they're not signing a free agent. So, you know, I think they're they're running to the point, and I think a loss really in this first round, like, kind of really drives this point home. They're running to the point where now they they're sort of trapped into making the decision that they were kind of waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting to make at the right time. Like, they're going to get trapped the way that they thought they were by not making a move. So, I don't know. It's going to be a really interesting summer, and I they're, they're losing to the Bulls as a way of kind of making these questions a lot more difficult for them. And as sure as a Bulls fan, it's there's a little bit of glee in putting the Celtics in this position. It's very funny. Yeah. <laughs> the, Bulls, the Bulls don't deserve, but it's hilarious to watch this unfold. And, you know, we'll see if the Bulls can take uh, can take control here. But they have three of the next four games at home. So, right. you would think, I mean, you steal both in Boston, man. You, you, they should be in a position to win this. Now, I, feel, I felt like coming into this series, the Bulls were playing with house money. I mean, even from their perspective, the players had to be thinking it. It's a, it was a one-versus-eight matchup. I know that Wade said it's Boston versus Chicago. It's not one-versus-eight. But really, the Bulls had nothing to lose in this series. And now maybe there's a little bit more pressure on them. And we have seen the Bulls take their foot off the gas a little bit at times. It happened at the end of Game 1, where Marcus Smart nearly flopped his way into a Celtics victory. Oh, God, that was so funny. That was masterful, that flop. Ah, he's the king. Masterful. What he jumped into Butler, hit it made contact and immediately fell back over the other way. The body control that requires, like I am in awe. Like I, I almost bowed down to him on that. <laughs> <laughs> like, that was amazing. So we'll see. I mean, the bulls need to keep their foot on the gas here, but uh, those two games were really impressive. And I think the main value of these two wins for the bulls, people are asking me yesterday when I was doing a radio spot, they were asking me if, uh, you know, now Jimmy Butler's trade value is increased in the bulls can make a better deal for him or now, you know, Miritich's trade. Well, he's a free agent, but someone asked me if his trade value has increased. The real value, I think, of these two games is just it's been fun for the fans. It's like we had to watch a lot of bad basketball over yeah. the last two games. So now we got two good games. Cool. Like, I'll take it. I don't care. I know Gar Foreman probably feels a misplaced sense of satisfaction from it, but uh, the Bulls fans had to watch a lot of bad basketball this year. So. These two games, cool. They were fun. Yeah, and like, why would you trade Jimmy Butler if you're them now? Like, wouldn't this actually validate the reason to keep him? So, yeah, we're all for good. We're all for good, happy moments, and you know that's what's great about the sport. And I think sometimes we lose track of that when we think about like just assets and long term futures and blah 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 blah. Like, ultimately, like you, it is a business that brings in customers, and the customers have got to be happy. So, it's fascinating. Ricky O'Donnell, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Hopefully for your sake that you don't – they don't lose four in a row and that blog post you put up there you know, hangs in the wind and looks kind of silly. But you know, 
This will be interesting. And, you know, it's very possible that our favorite teams will be lined up against each other. Oh, my God. It's all said and done. The Wizards are going to kill the Bulls. I hope hope so. Uh, So, anyway, that's the show. Thanks to Eddie Masonette. Thanks to Ricky O'Donnell. Ben will be back next time, presumably. I'm sure he won't duck me. Uh, And... We'll keep having these throughout the playoffs. You know, we got a lot of big games this weekend. Uh, I want to say a quick note that uh, the Atlanta Hawks, like, I'm really happy that you guys are going to be gone soon because you're not playing basketball. You are playing MMA, and it's been very frustrating to watch, and it'll be justice that you lost these two games where you tried to play your terrible style Whatever. I, I, I shouldn't keep going. I'm going to get Hello. madder. So I'm going to get even madder. So anyway, this is uh, the Limited Upside Podcast. We'll be back next week with more playoff shows. Enjoy. Enjoy.